Zed Loud Network presents Corner Table Talk. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Corner Table Talk. Today, my two esteemed guests are Valerie Wilson and Mary Wagstaff, two titans in the world of hospitality-related media representation. Mary, I've known for a long time. We go back quite a ways. She is the founder and president of Wagstaff. It's an integrated public relations and marketing agency devoted to the travel and hospitality industry. She represents chefs, restaurants, hotels and restaurants, food halls, beer and wine, spirits brand. And we are also congratulating her because it is her 20th anniversary in business. So Mary, congratulations. That's a long time. Well done. Thank you, Brad. And uh, you say that you um, you have the good fortune of having lived out your dream to be in this business. So I'm really anxious to get into some of that with you. And then we have Valerie Wilson, who is the founder and chief executive of Val Inc. PR, a public relations and brand strategy veteran with vast experience in the food, wine, hospitality and lifestyle industries. It includes running the media relations for iconic culinary marketing platforms as New York City Restaurant Week, Restaurant Day, the James Beard Foundation Awards. Valerie has worked with Uber Eats and Uber, Shake Shack, and also represents celebrity chef J.J. Johnson. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And both are proud moms. I think, Valerie, you have three children. And Mary, I know you have a lovely (laughs) daughter. So being moms and being Titans in the public relations industry means that you both are quite busy. So welcome, Mary. Welcome, Valerie. Thanks for joining me at Corner Table Talk. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brad. I feel like I've just been waiting for this moment for like 30 years. So. Well, here it is. Here it <laughs> yeah. is. So I kick things off with what I call short order questions, just a few things to get us rolling and get a little insight into your personalities and your likes. So first question, Valerie, I'll I'll come to you and then Mary, you can answer the same thing. Valerie, what's in heavy rotation on your playlist these days? What are you listening to? Oh, wow. I guess it's my my running playlist, which is like a hodgepodge of things that don't make a lot of sense. So we've got some um, Beyonce, of course. Uh, but then there's probably like a, a queen <laughs> and then there is, um, it's just, there's some reggae in there. It's just anything that keeps me going because uh, I have to focus on the music to not pay attention to the fact that I'm running uphill. <laughs> <laughs> music to alleviate stress. Yeah. I'm with that. Mary, what's in your earbuds? Oh, I've been stuck in a Fleetwood Mac loop for about six months now. But also, I watched this incredible documentary about Keith Richards. It's a new Keith uh, documentary on Netflix last week. And it was so great because it was just all about the musicology. And it dug back into the blues, the blues inspiration, country inspiration and reggae inspiration. And I was just blown away by the uh, the doc because it just talks so much about his musical inspirations. And so I've been digging into Muddy Waters and old reggae and, and country after watching that. So yeah. uh, I highly recommend it. There's some connecting points there too. And I, and I saw recently where Fleetwood Mac sold their publishing for a ton of money, which is, is not a surprise that uh, they got so much. Back to you, Valerie. So what is on your feet? What are you wearing most days? What's What gets you around the city? 
let's see. I guess it's it's my I have this pair of um espadrilles <laughs> that I've been wearing a lot lately. <laughs> that um yeah, I got it a few years ago from um my husband as a birthday gift and I love them. So they just kind of always come in handy this time of year mm-hmm. when it's sort of transitioning into the spring or transitioning into the fall. So that's kind of what I've been wearing everywhere. Are you are you comfort first and style second or you like them to be of equal measure? I mean, they're pretty stylish. They're Chanel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so but they're also very comfortable. They have <laughs> so they work both ways. Cool. Cool. Mary, what are you wearing? Oh, I'm embarrassed to say, but since it's just the three of us here, I'll tell you. <laughs> right. um, I finally, the the pandemic broke me down in a lot of different areas, but it definitely broke me down in the footwear department and I am wearing Birkenstocks. So. <laughs> oh, gosh. That's I know. <laughs> well, you fit right in in Ojai. That's, yeah. you don't oh, I know. I've, I know. I resisted. I resisted, but I finally caved. Well, you, you're the flyest Birkenstock wearer in Ojai, I'm sure. <laughs> Valerie, where are you most looking forward to traveling to? So my family is from um, from Liberia, and mm-hmm. I haven't gotten to go in over a decade. Actually, I wanted to wait until my youngest was old enough to really enjoy the experience. So that's really where I'm looking forward to traveling. And hopefully um, we'll get to do that over Christmas this year or in the summer next year. Oh, that's that should be fantastic. And uh, is Liberia, is that along the coast? It is. It's very much a coastal um, country. It's sort of where Africa bends on the west there, mm-hmm. like right on the on the uh, bending tip. Yeah. So it's very um, coastal country. The capital city is everything overlooks the ocean. So my family is from there. And then my grandparents are from Kapamas, which is also right on the water. And so I want to be able to visit both areas and enjoy it from a different perspective. I was a kid when I when I lived there. So I just want to see what it's like. Yeah, that's super cool to be able to go back to somewhere that's, uh, you know, the origin of of your family. I I would cherish an experience like that. Mary, what about you? Where are you looking to going? Looking forward to going? Well, I took my first trip, my first um, big trip about three or four weeks ago, and we went to New Orleans. And it was so wonderful to see restaurants back and people really having a great time in them and hear music on the streets. And, and so, so I can't wait to go back to New Orleans. And, and then I, um, love Europe. I'm planning a trip, hopefully to go to England, uh, in. Uh, July. So fingers crossed that that happens. Fantastic. So did New Orleans look like it had come back to life, Mary, since uh, since COVID where people were out and restaurants looked to uh, to be back in business? Well, we've had we've had the pleasure of uh, representing Commander's Palace for about uh, probably close to 20 years now. Wow. And mm-hmm. and I guess we just and T. Martin, the owner of the restaurant, is a, a good friend of mine and a client. And and she said that it the hotel occupancy had gone from about 23 percent to about 85. And we had dinner at Commander's Palace one night and it was just lovely. And 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 you wore, wore mask in, but we we ate in the garden. 
cringe. We were pinching ourselves because <laughs> it felt so fantastic to be the, uh, be there and be enjoying uh, enjoying a meal in such a great restaurant. And we stayed in the Treme and <clears throat> and we uh, had uh chicken from um uh from Willie Mays and that was fantastic and we were able to walk around it, it, you know and explore the city and and also it was it was spring break and the kids were the kids were out on Bourbon Street so it was really fantastic Wow, made me that very hopeful. So fantastic, yeah. yeah. It's tough to yeah. beat New Orleans yeah, when, it's, when it's in full bloom. Yeah. Um, so, Valerie, tell me your your fondest childhood memory around food. Oh well, that would have to be my my grandmother. My my dad's mother really was one of those people who was was making the meal and thinking about the next meal. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, you know, like I'm usually she, eating a meal and thinking about the next meal. Yeah. <laughs> so a friend of mine told me that that's that's a sign of of your of your age when you get to the age where you're like thinking about thinking about <laughs> your meals. You. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm there. I'm there. She would make all of the traditional Liberian dishes. And then my favorite would be a dessert that she makes, which is this sort of uh, pudding cake. So you're making the cake as a batter and then you have to put it in the can and then you, you weight the can down with, um, with, with the rock and the boils in this in sort of a half pot of water that solidifies the cake into this like dense texture. And then she's, she does this sort of confection sugar and brandy and orange zest and I don't know, some other grandma special things in there and it's just simple but just incredible um mm. so i think that i always every time i think about her i think about that that dessert that she made and that only tasted as good when she made it and it was i think one of my first real experiences with really feeling like i love food <laughs> was because she was so um everything that she did she did was so uh, intense like mm -hmm. he, he felt like he tasted all of the flavors in it and all of these things and it, and it's one of those things where you become an adult and you're now around you're doing this as as a profession and you start to understand what you were what you were experiencing and reacting to you know like some of the dishes that she made like there's a there's a um a, a traditional stew that's made out of the pulp of the of the uh, palm nut so they will you know with a mortar and chisel um, sort of beat the pulp out of the palm nut and that that pulp becomes the the uh, basis of a stew but it's usually done with seafood and because where my grandparents live was right on the sea you had all these different mm. varieties of seafood that would be in it and it just you know it and I, and I realized that the taste of that dish was to be able to taste the sea in the in the food like that's what made it so outstanding because when we make it here it just doesn't have the same it doesn't have quite the same um, flavoring to it. So yeah, I would say she was, she was definitely influential in my, um, in my palate. Well, Mary, I'm going to ask you the same question. I don't know how you're going to top that though. So, but I'm going to give you a shot. You're from Virginia. Thank you, Valerie. That was incredible. I mean, I was right there with you and, and, uh, I want to talk about I can about smell it right things. now. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, we'll come around. I'm going to ask you both about what you see emerging as food trends, because I do believe I've seen West Africa popping up quite a bit in, uh, you know, in picks for things that are that are kind of getting a little a little attention. But uh, Mary, tell us, Virginia, growing up, what'd you eat? What's your fondest food memory? Well, first, that's description of this dish from growing up, the idea of the seawater really informing the dish. It's just so, you know, that's just such a rich image. And, it, you know, I, I could taste it when you were describing it and could, you know, it's those, those little things that, that really make the difference. And also it's who, who you're enjoying the food with. I, I grew up in Richmond and my mom had a sister and her, she was my aunt Doris and she had flaming red hair and her nickname was Pinky. And so she was my aunt Pinky and she was just every time we would go, they lived in Norfolk, Virginia, and we would spend a lot of time there. And everything we did was around food. We would either be at the beach uh, catching crabs with, uh, chicken necks, you know, tied on pieces of string, or we'd be out fishing in a boat. Uh, but, but what really stands out for me is that they had a fig tree in their yard and a pecan tree. And we would, uh, make fresh churned butter pecan ice cream and peach ice cream. And then she made, it made this ambrosia dish that I, I have no idea. I've never tried to recreate it ever, but I, I can taste it now. And it was, it was just this idea of food being fun and, and being, being an activity in itself and something that you do with your friends and your family that really made, made up an impact on me. Wow. <laughs> okay. Uh, I am so right there with both of you. Now, did you say catching crabs with chicken necks? Did I, did I hear that correctly? Chicken necks tied on a string. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's a new At one. At the All beach right. <laughs> in, I think it's called Ocean View. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was just incredible. You know, it, it just wow. really, really, really good, clean, fun, Brad. Yeah, it sounds like it. And, and great ocean air. Both of you were breathing in in those experiences. So, yeah, that, that's tough to duplicate in a restaurant setting. So let's dive in here. Um, I'm curious how you two powerful women met. So tell me about the origin of your relationship. I know how lucky I am to have met Valerie probably about 19 years ago in Chicago when this business that I have was just starting out and she ran our Chicago office uh, for about a year and a half, right, Valerie? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I was really lucky to uh, have had the opportunity not only to work with Valerie, but uh, our company benefited from her her smarts and her um, her PR skills. And and I, you know, she was one of the fundamental building blocks of uh, helping us establish and grow our company. Well, that's quite a compliment, Valerie. What what drew you to hospitality PR? 
Well, thanks, Mary. Well, first of all, Mary Wagstaff is a legend, as we know. Um, mm-hmm. And I've been blessed to, to work with, with women uh, in this industry that I've gotten to learn so much from. They've, they've all been real pioneers in, in this field and, and sort of driving forces behind the, the industry with the work that they do. And, and she was one of the, the very first ones um, in the industry. Well, actually, she was the first, the first agency that represented food that I worked with was um, was Mary. And so I would say that a lot of my interest in being in hospitality was influenced by her. And we've I was I had started my own sort of consultancy in um, in Chicago. And that's when I met her. And I had and I did it working with the restaurant. So I, I guess I had I had decided to delve a little bit into the into food, but it was with working with um, Wagstaff and all of these great um, accounts that she had, and um, and the opportunity to meet all of the the writers and the respect that they had for for her and for her work that made it so interesting to me and how it and how that whole engine worked. And uh, when I moved to New York, I ended up. Finding another woman powerhouse in, in, uh, Melanie Young, who was, you know, really a driving force for the industry at that time as well. And she, she was running the, the Beard Foundation Awards. And, you know, she was one of those people that happened to be in the room when many of these sort of iconic hospitality programs were being formed. So from that, or she, you know, Restaurant Week and Restaurant Day, these are all things that, were um, that she was working on from the ground floor. And those of us that worked on that team with her um, got such, you know, indisposable access and um, just skills developed as as a result of it. We were exposed to the entire world of um, hospitality. I mean, when you work for the for the Beard Awards, at least once or twice a year, you're going to speak to everybody that's writing or covering food in some way or dimension from around the world. So you're constantly, the exposure is just tremendous. So for me, it was just, uh, I, I felt like this was an industry that really spoke to my love of culture. Um, my, my parents always sort of impressed that on me that that culture is sort of a uh, it's a world connector. It's a global connector. It's it's where we all find commonality. We all have some sort of sense or connection to to our own culture and then to others. Um, that's sort of how we learn. And um, and so I, I just found that hospitality really spoke to me in that way in terms of finding that. And so I've never been sort of interested in in the, the more obvious avenues of you know, entertainment and, and that sort of thing. I really, I really love more high culture, which I see as culinary, the arts, culinary arts, fine arts, um, design, that sort of thing. So, yeah, so it all just sort of fit into my, my own, um, ideas of what I, what, what I found most exciting and interesting. Very cool. And, you know, I want to second what you said. Mary is definitely a a legend in this industry and to have, to have been in the business for 20 years. The fact that she's a woman probably was a, a bit of an added challenge, but you would have never known that. I mean, Mary is, has just been getting it done for a while. And obviously an eye for talent, you know, because you are a star in the business now. You know, I go back into the 70s. My, I'm a second generation restaurateur. My dad had a place in New York on the Upper West Side. And I remember when there was no such thing as hospitality PR, right? 
And, you know, the, the places, one, the first place that I did on my own, my partner was an actor and he was dating the, the uh, singer Carly Simon at the time. And Mary, you would know this because you were in New York, um, during these days. And I think hard rock might have just opened around that time. So back then it was celebrity. I experienced that with Memphis and that having Carly meant we were getting mentions in page six before we were open. You know, my dad's place never got a mention in page six in 15 years. And here we are, you know, Carly's a part of us and we're getting this pre-opening press, which led to business. And, you know, I saw that work, that formula work many times, certainly Swifty Lazar with Wolfgang Puck in L.A. And the more celebrities, the more you get written up and the more the public knows about you. But and then we've seen our industry just proliferate since the Food Channel, Food Network, celebrity chefs, you know, uh, chefs have just become, you know, stars and, and restaurateurs probably lagging way behind. But, uh, you know, certainly, certainly the, uh, the media has paid attention to our industry. And I'm curious, Mary, I'll, I'll toss this one to you first and then to you, Val. But how, how do you think the industry has evolved in the 20 years since you started? And you can factor in the social media component there, too, if you like. Well, I'm going to give you the long answer, Brad. And <laughs> and I first want to say I moved to New York in 1983 and from Virginia. I went to NYU and my parents were country people and no one from my family, you know, I think they may have been to New York once before um, they took me up to, to go to school. And so they, we were all excited about the opportunity. And I think they gave me a, a, a monthly allowance of a hundred dollars a month to um, have in New York city. And I, you know, I, and, and that was very generous, uh, considering, um, uh, you know, what the means, you know, that, that they had. And I realized really quickly that if, uh, I was not going to be able to stay in New York City and go to school unless I figured out a way to supplement that monthly allowance. And I wanted to stay in New York because there were places like Memphis for me to go and hang out and the limelight and, and the CBGBs. And, and I did not want to go back to Virginia. And so I figured out really quickly that I could work in restaurants and supplement, supplement, uh, and be able to stay in New York. So, uh, I, I was really fortunate and I worked with some major players, uh, on the scene at that time. And it was really just luck. I, I worked at Gotham Bar and Grill when Alfred Portali was the chef there. And I worked, uh, I opened a restaurant for Joe Baum called Aurora. And then I, I, but I really lucked out and worked for a chef restaurateur named Jonathan Waxman and his partner, partner, Melvin Master. And they had a restaurant called Jams that was at 72nd and Lexington. And it was off the hook. It, they had Calder Mobile in, in the dining room and David Hockney paintings on the walls and, and they would serve plates of chicken with french fries and baby vegetables that, uh, for about $35 for an entree. And this was in like 1984, 1985. And I was like all 
eyes and ears. And it was a whole different world for me. And I knew something was going on. But the thing that really changed the dynamic for me was I uh, remembered that there was an article in GQ magazine, and it was a double spread of the two of them wearing Armani suits, holding up plates of chicken next to their, their heads. And I was like, now, how does that happen? <laughs> you know, they're not celebrities, you know, they're not actors, but, but there was this moment where, oh, these restaurant owners and chefs are becoming celebrities. And I didn't know that it was called PR. I had no idea how it happened. All I knew was that I wanted to be figure out how how to make that happen because it was really exciting for me because I love the business and I love the idea of the people that were uh, making these this food and these experiences and uh, these places happen that they they were getting this attention. And so fast forward about five years later, I was in Chicago. I was working at a restaurant. I was writing for the Chicago Tribune about food and restaurants. And someone taps me on the shoulder and says, uh, I've got this PR company. I'd love you to come and uh, work at my company. I think you'd be really good at it. And I said, hmm, what's PR? And they told me what it was. And I was like, oh, yes, I can do that. And so it was really fun because I didn't even know what it was called. I just knew I wanted to do it. And and also I knew that I only wanted to do it for our industry, for chefs and restaurants. And, um, and then I added on uh, hotels and travel destinations because that was such a great way to uh, build uh, relationships with uh, media people is to be able to go on a trip with them and really get to know them and to understand what they were interested in and then to be able to work with them on those kinds of stories. So that's and then when I started, I I had worked in PR before I started my own business. And when I started my own business, everyone told me they they said you're nuts, you know, like you can't build a business relying on restaurateurs to uh, pay their fees. And uh, you know, you'll be the last one to get paid if you get paid. And I was like, I don't care because you know this is what I want to do. And if I don't get paid, I'll go and you know I'll wait tables. I'll, I'll I'll, I just won't spend as much, you know, like I, I was like, I'll make the sacrifices to be able to see how this thing plays out. And I was really lucky because when I made that decision, uh, something called the Food Network did not exist. And the Food Network, when that started, that was the game changer for our industry that really flipped the switch. That's when you saw people put real money into developing restaurants and building out marketing plans to um, make those restaurants happen. And now, now it's, now we're at, uh, you know, post, as we come out of the pandemic, we're on the precipice of a whole new opportunity for restaurateurs and restaurants for new concepts and for people who may not have had the opportunity to be involved in our business before. Today, right now is the moment that um, people who haven't had access get to um, play, play, play in this world. So I, I couldn't be more, ex and with social media and with lots of uh, less expensive ways of marketing to clientele and getting the message out. Uh, I think that, you know, I think that we're figuring it out as we go, but I just know there's 
tons of opportunity. That was a long I, answer, Brad. No, it's a, it's a very good one. It's really kind of the history of hospitality PR in about three minutes. So, you know, that, that's I hope folks are taking notes because there were there were a lot of gems uh, dropped in that little uh, piece from you. Thank you, Mary. Valerie, so what, what is your time? I mean, you've been around, you know, in this business for, you know, 20 years, just about, right? And, and you see from your perspective in New York, you know, you work with JJ Johnson, who's an emerging superstar in the business. Um, Harlem, you've been a part of the, the resurgence as a native New Yorker. I, you know, witnessed Har- Harlem go through its changes in the seventies and the eighties. And now it's, it's a brand. I mean, it's, it's, it's hot. So what, what is your view of, of hospitality PR and, and some of the things that Mary just kind of, kind of addressed? What, what's your take? Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I got to New York, um, obviously much later than, um, than Mary did. That was, I was, I got here in, uh, late 2000. Right before 9-11, which, which had a, obviously a, um, impact. But coming here, um, what was, what was happening in the industry at that time? Um, the beard, I, I joined, um, M. Young the year after, I believe it was Newsweek magazine called the Beard Awards, the Oscars of the food world. So it became my mission to, to take it out of just being um, heavily covered by the by industry trades and um, and move it into the consumer marketplace and and make sure that type of coverage was happening and um, so to see like the like the newsweeks and the instyles and and all of these publications now coming and then um, so I also what was happening at that time was this sort of transition into um, into the celebrity chef status because we were we definitely Definitely had restaurateurs, major um, major players in that way, but the singling out of chefs beyond just uh, Food Network, but to be sort of these celebrities in their own right was what was happening at that time. I think Rocco Despirito launched his reality show, which was, I guess, not so well received at the, at the time. It was fun to was, watch, though, with Jeffrey Chowderow. It was fun Chowderell. to watch, with <laughs> Jeffrey Chowderow. Um, and my, actually my good friend, um, Karina Black, who worked at Susan Magrino at the time, this, that was her account, that whole situation. But it was really, um, an interesting time because even though his show wasn't, it didn't, um, come across, at least the food industry, the food industry was not that excited about it. It did set the groundwork for what was to come in terms of this sort of reality TV and, and food and chefs and all of that. So I would say that I was here sort of in that whole transitional period of when we, we moved the industry into much more of a, um, a consumer consumption space. And so that it sort of grew into this more um, celebrity based and influencer based and all of that machine sort of took it over um, from there. And that translated into my work here in in Harlem. I mean, I I'd wor- after working for for a few agencies in New York and starting a family, I took time off and then I ended up in Harlem and realized that I was here and there were restaurants here that I had never heard about. And I, and I thought, well, if I hadn't, if I live here and I haven't heard about these places, then who else hasn't heard about them? And I should be the one to help people know about them. And it's sort of, um, and then I learned that very early that the cup, co- you hadn't heard about them because the coverage was not reaching 
Harlem. So where, as I was taking for granted, working downtown with, with all of the sort of, you know, very visible and noise making brands that were down there and having access to all the media I could want, that ended somewhere at 96th Street and getting those same people who were even friends and people that I work with all the time to come uptown was was not happening. And so then that became my my mission was, well, while I'm here, I'm going to make sure that that this market, it's no longer a big deal for this market to get the same level of coverage as everybody else is able to get downtown. So, you know, to see 10 years later that, you know, people are getting covered by 60 Minutes or CBS this Sunday morning or, you know, all of these big outlets that 10 years ago were just not just seem so far fetched. You know, that's that's something I feel really good about that we were able um, able to do. So so to Mary's point, in terms of coming out of COVID and, and the transition, it feels like it's a it's just a great um, sort of entry point for everyone to, to find ways to to um, sort of recalibrate things because at the end of the day, the, the food industry also do, does need a little bit of zhuzhing. It needs, you know, a little, um, a little bit of new life. I mean, and and where those trends and and where those um, new ideas are coming from are really going to be coming from the, the people who haven't had the access to be in this space um, prior to markets like a Harlem that fosters that type of talent development and and elsewhere around the country that they're going to start to play, I think, a much more um, crucial role in how the how this industry shapes up moving forward. Yeah, I want to um, just dive into that a little bit more deeply too, uh, Valerie and, and Mary. Um, you know, I, we certainly have seen, you know, all of the stuff that we witnessed with, with the pandemic and how that kind of all caused us to stop in our tracks and, and, you know, take a, take a look around. And then we saw the protests for racial justice and then, you know, the ensuing fallout. And we had some in our industry in publishing and, and at James Beard. Um, we saw the Adam Rappaport uh, resign or or is no longer with Bon Appetit and Don Davis taking his place. And then we saw the James Beard Award uh, go through their own changes. And, you know, Valerie, you just brought up, a you know, a, a point that I, I like to talk about a lot because my concern is while it's great that there is now this this focus and I saw Melba Wilson on 60 Minutes and I've seen, you know, various African-American chefs on some of the prominent uh, news programs that five years ago, um, two years ago, we weren't seeing. So yeah. I do believe that there there has been some movement. So that's not to say that there's been nothing. But, you know, this year kind of was a reckoning. But without more black food writers um, and more black editors, African-American editors, is this going to be short lived, do you think? Or are we really in the midst of some kind of a, a some kind of a change? Because I agree. With you. I mean, we need, you know, I, I, you know, I have been, you know, saying this for a long time that we just don't our stories don't get told. Our restaurants don't get uh, when we opened Post and B. Mary did that uh, with us as a uh, she represented us in 2012 in L.A. and South L.A. When I looked at L.A. Magazine, did a map of dining destinations that went from downtown to West Hollywood to Brentwood to Manhattan Beach. They basically flew over South L.A. Like there was not one dining destination in all of South Los Angeles that was worthy of a dot. And that was a huge miss. So how do you see that? Where, what's, what's missing? What needs to happen to make this a structural change? 
I do think that there is a huge, um, there's a huge gap in talent. I think that, you know, you know, somebody from, from even my era, if we can say that, like there were, there were very, you know, when I was, um, in agencies in, in New York City, I would say that there were maybe consistently five of us that looked like me that you would see in regularly in, um, in these events or, or venues, um, and pretty consistently the same five because there wasn't necessarily, um, an outreach to or incentive for more of us to be in, in the industry. None of the, none of the clients that we worked on look like us. I mean, I, I'm, and then people always ask, well, so what did you, I, and I, I think for me, I just enjoyed the work and I didn't really think about, I didn't really necessarily think about it in, in those terms, but I was very aware that that there were fewer that you know I was an an anomaly um, in my field, and I think that that is unfortunately something that is part of the reckoning, right? Because we do need we have this sort of um, vacuum of talent, people who could definitely do this work, but nece- we're not necessarily attracted to it, and we have to do the work to attract them into the field so that they can be a part of of what is happening. So you have that happening at the same time that these that you're seeing chefs of color on the rise who are typically not who are typically going to agencies that are are not run by people like me. And why they're going there is not necessarily I mean, I don't necessarily blame them, but they're thinking, you know, if I put this whole investment of money together and and I have my thing going. I want to make a bet on some on um, an agency that I feel will have all of the connections to get me into the places that I think I need to be in order for my um, my place to be successful. And they've come up in an industry where they're not used to seeing somebody that looks like me with the capacity to do that. I look like more of a gamble than um, than someone else. So I think that we have a lot of work to do on that end. I think, you know, with the writers, with the with the sort of um, PR and all the other support mechanisms that come with with moving this industry forward. I think we have a lot of work to do in terms of attracting the talent from early stages and into the field so that we are, are building that. So we're a little bit behind on that end in terms of it. But what's good is that the issue is in the forefront. So it means that people are starting to pay attention and people are starting to think about this as a pathway for themselves and something that they, um, that they're interested in, in, in doing. Um, so I, you know, I'm hopeful that we're going to start to see more, more of that, more diversity in, in, in our industry. Well, you don't look like a gamble to me. You look about as close to a sure thing as, as I've ever seen. <laughs> so I would definitely bet on you. Uh, Mary, what, what, what's your take? You know, as I mentioned, you represented, uh, us with Post and Beam back in 2011. You knew some of the challenges that, uh, you know, my, my sole, not sole reason, but my, one of my main incentives for knowing that I needed a chef of Gobin's caliber was because I was afraid that the, the, 
the white news media, food news media would overlook me if I didn't have that. That as a restaurateur, just opening a place there on my own would not be enough. I needed that guy that they could not ignore. And that was why, you know, I, I picked Govan. But what, what's your take on, on this discussion? And I know you, you, you have renewed efforts to diversify your hiring, your, your mission statement on your website speaks such to such. And I know your heart and your soul and, and the way that you think. But what, what's your take on on this di- issue of diversity and, and you know, the the absence of some of the coverage hitting some of the, the places that uh, Valerie and I have just uh, just discussed? Well, you know, for for I believe that for the restaurant and travel industries to continue to grow, that it is imperative that we continue to open our doors wider to everyone. And, you know, if we call ourselves the hospitality business, and unless we are really opening ourselves up to provide a welcoming place for everyone, our businesses will only suffer. Mm-hmm. And I had the opportunity to, you know, Valerie and I had stayed in touch over the years and we would see each other at events and at the James Beard Awards. And, you know, both of us would be way too busy to really have a a meaningful catch up. And, uh, you know, I regret that I was too busy over those years to uh, maintain a meaningful uh, connection with Valerie. And... Uh, you know, with all the sadness and horrors related to the pandemic, uh, you know, one of the things that it has given me the opportunity to, um, uh, slow down a little bit and, and reconnect with people that, um, I really admire and appreciate. And one of those people is Valerie. And, and we reconnected early, probably in June, uh, when there was a scramble amongst agencies like mine to be like, oh, how can we represent more people of color in our industry. And Valerie spoke up and said, hey, you know, what, like, like I've been doing this all along and, you know, don't, don't, don't come and take this. This is what I do. And like, I'm here. And so I applaud Valerie for doing that. And, and then at the same time, I believe that in our industry, we're, we are uh, rather tribal, uh, you know, publicists, you know, it's our, you know, my contacts, my clients, my, you know, it's my, 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 and my relationships. And, you know, that, that kind of thinking is limiting. And I have always made it a point to try to um, be around and work with people different from myself. I find that so much more interesting. You know, I have to be with myself 24 hours a day and, <laughs> and I, I really want to learn new things. And, and I think though that, um, it can be scary at our company. Every day is an effort to put ourselves out there to try to do things in a more open and different way. And I will, I just want to share a quick story. You know, we have a really fantastic HR department at our company. 
And we've switched over where HR does all the recruiting for open positions. And it, and we don't, um, you know, we have to uh, look at a number of candidates before we can make a decision because that's it. That this feeds into, oh, you know, I know someone and, you know, PR is so much about who you know. And, you know, my like, I think I originally met Valerie because I knew your cousins in L.A., Valerie, you know, like it, <laughs> like it's so much about who who's your contacts. Right. But that doesn't work anymore. And and so. Um, our HR department has put together certain protocols so that we can make sure that we're considering uh, a wider uh, group of people for our open positions. And uh, our HR director called me last week and she was very upset because we had recently filled a position and it had we had not gone through that protocol. And I was like, well, the person that we hired is so fantastic and she's great. And, and our HR director called me on it and said, that does not matter. We cannot hire people unless we have really gone through, made sure that we have done a thorough search for as many people who are qualified for this position as possible. And I believe that that's the only way that we're going to make a difference is to slow down, put together a new way of doing things, and then follow those rules. And to the point of um, more diversity in terms of uh, journalists and who's covering these different kinds of businesses, you know, I think that PR and media work hand in hand. Most of the PR people uh, that I know, they worked in journalism at some point or vice versa. And so I think the two go hand in hand. One feeds into the other. And then also our, our, the hospitality industry has been marked by a certain sort of intensity, a certain sort of perfection, you know, play hard, work hard kind of ethic. And we, in order to make the change, we really have to slow down and take a look at uh, why we're doing things and do things, do the right things for the right reasons. And all of these things are, you know, it now is the moment to do that as we come out, come out of the pandemic. So if I can add one more thing, I, I, I do think what's going to be key to this is the audience, right? It's about expanding the audiences and for, for everything, for, you know, the sort of um, spectrum of, of hospitality that exists from, you know, fast casual to fat to white tablecloths, that we're attracting a bigger, wider audience to want to do those things. And I think that when we do that, then the support systems have to follow because you have to be more fluid in a diversity of culture. So then you will have to have those assets in your businesses to make that happen. It's really sort of realigning things so that it's not only catering to one certain audience, but that you're expanding that access to a larger audience and generating that interest. Yeah, that, that's a great point. Thank you. And, um, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's refreshing to me. I, I, Valerie, I did not know about you until Mary, uh, uh, made me aware of you. And, you know, I can just tell you as a, as an African American restaurateur, um, and existing in the food space for, you know, many decades and not having that advocate that, you know, really would seek you out and make sure that your story was told. I mean, Mary did that for us because she's Mary. But I can think of, you know, many instances where, well, let's just say that there's some catching up that needs to be done. So yeah. um, I'm glad to know that you're out there because I think you're, you're going to be an advocate for for that purpose. Um, so we got a couple more things I want to get to before we run out of time. And I'm curious just to, you know, generally speaking, I mean, restaurants have been in the forefront of the media, you know, this past year. 
you know, now restaurant workers are considered frontline workers in some cases, and the the entire industry has overused the word pivot, but it was necessary to figure out how to pay the rent, keep the doors open, and some people employed. Do you think that that the, the public now views um, restaurants in a way differently, perhaps, than they did pre-COVID? Like social gathering is something that we really cherished since it's been taken away from us. And does do you do you see that having a, a positive impact, hopefully, on as dining starts to come back on on people being willing to to fill up dining rooms again. Uh, Valerie, I'll, I'll, I'll toss that to you first. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, I think just looking at it from a from a uh, New York perspective, because we were one of the first to. Well, I don't know what well, we want to whenever we had a we had a pretty harsh lockdown that really took everybody by surprise, I would say, and and really sent everybody sort of into a tailspin like it did every, everything else. But one of the things that we learned, especially being in a in a community like, say, Harlem, is is how important the restaurant is to community. And um, and so I just taking a look at just New York City as um, an example, the areas that were where restaurants are part of communities, those restaurants tended to fare much better than the areas where the restaurants are not. So if you were to ride, take a ride from uptown and then sort of go down through, say, the Upper East Side and, and make your way to Midtown and so forth, you would see a completely different landscape of what was happening with the restaurants from going along that area um, and taking that journey. And it, and a big reason, I think, is because the restaurants, say, in Midtown um, and in some and in some cases in in on the Upper East Side, say, they weren't these were not places that connected necessarily to um, the communities that they were in. And so there uh, there wasn't necessarily a um, as much of an intentional effort on, on behalf of those people who relied on those spaces to keep it afloat in an area like Harlem, where people like your restaurants are part of your experience of of living in the community, you know the you know the owners, you know their families, you you remember when it opened, you you know what you like off of their menus and why why it needs to be there. You know that empty storefronts is bad for your neighborhood. Then you make this sort of concerted effort to to support those businesses to see them um, ride through, and as a result. So many um, businesses here were able to make it through without having to completely go out of business. You know, they may have downsized a bit or for the moment that they were shut down. Um, but mo- but the majority of them were able to bring back all of their all of their staff and in, in many cases expand their businesses in so many ways that they would not have been able to do as quickly because of how much extra support they they received. And then it was also out of communities like this that some of the movements that restaurants took took hold of around the country started, like feeding the frontline workers and and the children. You know, I mean, working with um, with uh, JJ and Field Trip, that was something that um, we were doing really early out of the gate. I mean, I remember in February when this thing started buzzing and I just would be talking to restaurant owners and I'm like, well, the, to me, the thing is going to be who gets out and, and takes care of the essential workers. And the reason that I had that idea was actually from, from Melanie Young, because when 
9-11 happened that night at the Beard Foundation. There was supposed to be a big uh, dinner, as there would typically be. But obviously, the dinner wasn't going to happen. And Melanie said that she was sort of, you know, restless and sleepless. And she decided to go over to the, to the Beard House. And they collectively decided to make that food and have it ready for the ambulance workers and hospital workers across the street because St. Vincent was across the street that they would that they would feed. And it happened that NBC Nightly News was hanging out there also probably waiting for ambulances to come in. And they spoke to her about it. And that became like a national story that then really set off this movement of all of the, you know, the giant restaurants going down and feeding the um, the workers down at ground at ground zero. You know, that had an, an impact on me and how a small idea and gesture um, turned into an entire industry wide movement. And I started thinking, well, this this is going to be the case. Like the hospitals are going to end up needing to be <laughs> their workers are going to end up needing to be fed. And all of you here should be thinking about how you're going to organize yourselves to feed them. And so when it happened, you know, for for JJ, it clicked for him because his wife happened to be a, a nurse and she came home with the experience. Well, I haven't eaten for 17 hours. I've been on on call and, you know, I didn't have time to think about any food. And so he sent them food and their reaction to it was like, oh, well, if they're they're hungry and they're not able to get to food because of what's going on, what I, I can't imagine what's happening in all of the hospitals uptown. I should I should look into that. And that rolled in, you know, that turned into an entire thing. And of course, the you know, the media picked up on that. And, and, and there you have a movement of what was happening. So and so how the restaurants got cast as essential businesses really came out of how the communities that they were supporting viewed them and wanted to make sure that they they stayed put. So I, I think definitely it's changed the way people look at restaurants and what makes an, what makes an essential business. I think that we all sort of miss the camaraderie and being able to be together. There was a great article, I think it was the New York Times wrote about how um, we lost parts of our families when we lost access to restaurants because you have your bar family that you, you know, you see, you know, my, my husband has been um, going to this one bar Finelli's for, for as long as we've lived in New York city. Like, so my, my kid, they know all of our kids that go there and so you lose your bar family when you, um, when you can't have access to it. So all of those kinds of things are what people are, are reacting to. And I think, um, I think, yeah, I think restaurants come back with people really understanding why they're so, so, um, important. And, and I think economically, I don't know that the country really may have made the connection to how much employment comes from the hospitality industry as well. So, so this was a good moment also to understand the importance of this industry to the overall economy as well. Yeah, great, great points. I mean, you, you know, you really kind of spelled it out there. And, and at a time when I think a lot of independent restaurants were feeling the pressure from larger chains and, you know, the, the pandemic being as unfortunate as it was, but to shine the light on the importance and the value that these independently owned restaurants add to their communities. I think the, the pandemic has certainly done that. And you laid that out really well, Valerie. Uh, Mary, what, what is your what's your take on on this? Well, Valerie did such a great job uh, answering the question. And 
I just feel that uh, restaurants are culture. I think that, uh, you know, we've all missed our restaurant families, our, you know, the excitement of go, going and checking out, uh, you know, visiting the places that we love and checking out new places and trying new things. You know, going to a restaurant is like going on a little trip for most of us. And, and then, but I think that the good news as we come out of this is that there's just so much more emphasis placed on appreciation appreciating the people that work in restaurants. And I think that, um, you know, it's, and, and that's my, my hope is that, uh, there's more dignity, um, in those positions. I think that people in the hospitality industry, we've always been super proud, you know, and, and, you know, had this uh, self-confidence and self-esteem and inner self-confidence and self-esteem to be part of this business. But, uh, that has not always been shared by, uh, the world at large and, like Valerie said, um, our industry makes up, you know, so many jobs, so many opportunities. You know, there's a, there's so much growth potential in our industry. We need more talented, smart people to work in our industry. And I think that hopefully uh, those jobs and those careers will only be improved as we come out of the pandemic. Let's hope so. I know there's a, a serious um, hiring shortage uh, going on in both L.A. and in particular New York. So hope hope that starts to improve. Uh, so we're, we're running out of time here. But I, so I'm going to take my last question and kind of combine it uh, with another question. And Mary, I'll ask you first. So looking into your crystal ball, what do you think we're going to be talking about this time next year? And, and if you want to make that a food trend, a, a restaurant trend or just something general that you see looking up into the stars on a clear night, no high. What, what do you think we're going to be talking about a year from now? I th hope that we'll be talking about how many new concepts and new trends have been able to open and thrive in the last year, you know, where it's new cuisines that have been celebrated, uh, new, um, you know, great new graphics, uh, incredible new branding opportunities, so many more opportunities to eat outside, uh, uh, more ways to uh, enjoy cocktails, more uh, different kinds of cocktails, but more low alcohol or no alcohol alcohol beverages. And so it's it's like, how do we keep the party going, but make it more conscientious and mm -hmm. uh, more healthy and more sustainable at the end of the day? Perfect. Valerie, what do you see around the corner? I think we'll see more and, and more expanded um, interest in the foods out of West Africa. I think that, you know, they're starting to show up in so many different ways. I had an interesting conversation with this brand that literally launched, um, I thought she said last year in, in June called AO, and they are taking West African dishes that, you know, that, uh, that I, that would be familiar to me and packaging them and putting them on shelves in stores like, you know, Whole Foods and Crozier's and they're the, and, and they're in, they're on, you know, thousands of door shelves i was i was really amazed by the how quickly they were able to scale up this business um and that they were able to generate this much interest in in what they're making at such a short um, amount of time and to me that's indicative of um a genuine interest in exploring these new flavors the flavors 
um, and ingredients that are coming out of out of West Africa. I feel like that's going to be the next sort of um, um, area of exploration for for what we'll start to see on menus. I mean, obviously, there's there's a lot of jollof talk, and you know, the, you see people sort of trying to incorporate that onto their menus. But I think you'll start to see even more in condiments, in um, in sauces, in you know, sort of meat preparations. I think you'll start to see it more. In, in what people are doing in, um, on the, the various food networks. There's this guy that my kids turned me on to that he has a YouTube channel. I don't remember his name now, um, but he travels in these like really remote um, areas all over the world, but he does a lot in Africa where he'll just, you know, and he's trying these foods that people just don't think about, you know, even or know about. But I think that he has a huge following and I, and I find it fascinating that everybody, it, you know, that he has this type of following and people are really paying attention to it. And, and I, and I think that's just a cyclical thing, right? Like we've, we've really, I think, explored to, um, I don't know how much more we can explore the foods of, you know, of Spain, of France, of Italy, even of India, you know, of Asia that we've done because those have been all the standards that have existed and have driven the industry this far. So this feels like the next frontier and the timing feels right for it. And I think that we're going to see that. And you see that in, in the, 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 the chefs that are that are coming up, the, the sort of younger chefs that are that are starting to make waves um, in the industry are, are also driving that. Uh, so I think that's going to be um, one major thing that we we will start to see take really more legs in within the next year. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I read recently where one of the hottest chefs in France is an African young African man who's six foot seven and is on TV and you know quite a personality. But yeah, I think with voices like yours to amplify it, I, I, it's an exciting trend in a, the culinary journey that we're on. I think is very exciting. Um, Valerie Wilson, Mary Wagstaff, it has been a real honor and such an informative uh, corner table talk. I look forward to hopefully. Toasting with both of you and Mary and Valerie, my cocktail will be full strength. I'm looking, I'm not looking at <laughs> lower alcohol levels for, for that drink. But thank you both for joining me. I know you're busy and uh, this is a, a very hectic time. And, uh, but you took time out to join us and I just really wanted to say thank you. It's a pleasure, Brad. I'm Philly. I'm so in awe of you and your career. I just love this podcast. I've really, you know, you're just doing such a great job and it's just such an honor to be a, a part of it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I, and I, I agree. The, this podcast is really good and important. I'm glad that it's here um, and I want to see it um, grow. So thank you for, for um, be, being willing to do the work and thank you for having me having us today. Thanks for inviting me, Mary. <laughs> Always fun to be with you, Valerie. <laughs> yes, Thank you. Right. Cheers, ladies. Bye, Thank you. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson. Produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. Coordinating producer, Lauren Turner. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producers, Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a Say It Loud Network production.